All right, we're going. We're going for number two of the third 50. Uh, we've Our first one has just hit astronomical numbers of views since it just published about 15 minutes ago. And uh, nobody knows where it is. So we're, we're safe right now. How you doing, Wayne? Good to see you. Yeah, it's been a great week. The week started for me with my school reunion. And uh, it was great to walk in and see old faces. And I, I thought it was hilarious, Glenn, that the last time I saw some of these guys, we were talking about surfing and skateboards and how we are hotting up our cars. And this time it was about who's had knee surgery, whose parents have got dementia and uh, how hard it is to keep up paying school fees for your grandchildren. It's uh that was a crazy, it was a crazy day. Great day, but a crazy day. It's uh, the reunions are certainly a lot of fun. Uh, you know, like I just had a, a little mini one down in Alabama with some of my friends and it was, uh, it was very good. But uh, yeah, the, the numbers of the reunions, like how many years it's been are, are starting to get a little ridiculous, but uh, I guess it's, <laughs> I guess it's still good to, to be around here. Um, it's good to still be around full stop, isn't it? That's the, we, I met my my best friend in the center of Sydney where we went to school and we caught the train out to the reunion venue, which was about 20 miles from the city. And, and it was it was an intro. There was a, a whole range of emotions from man. I can't believe that 50 years has gone since we started high school to just being incredulous at how little things had changed. And, and a lot of warm memories when the train actually went past our school and our old football field. It was, yeah, it was, it was a, an amazing hour on a train just to, to go everything from shock and dismay and disbelief to just great joy and wonderful memories about a great part of our life. Absolutely. Very, very cool. Well, we kind of agreed to talk about you know, uh, underwater dolphins. And it really is because, um, I've been able to personally witness, uh, multiple times this year, uh, probably the greatest swimmer on the planet right now, as far as overall ability, uh, not one event, but every event. And that's Leon Marchand, uh, swimming here at, uh, Arizona state university swim for Bob Bowman. Um, and it's, it's been uh, an absolute education. I have all of my students are required to go to the meets so that they can see exactly what the future of swimming is. Um, and, you know, me being so close to the situation, um, you know, what do you hear? You're on the other side of the world. And, you know, here's a guy that out of 13 events uh, on the NCAA, 13 individual events on the NCAA um uh, event list. He he holds the top time in seven out of the thirteen events. Um, and the thing that kills me, or that just is crazy, is that it's going from the hundred breast to the five hundred free. I mean, you know, it's just it's it's mind boggling the um, the talent of this individual. But what we're going to talk about today is the consistency. What do you hear about Leon in Australia? Yeah, it, it reminds me very much of going way back about the great Alex Bauman from Canada, who was he was mm. a, a great 200, 400 medley swimmer, was world champion, world record holder, Commonwealth champion, Olympic champion, Olympic gold medalist, of course. But at the same time, was highly ranked in 200 meters of all those individual events. And when I, I talked to Alex about his development, he said that he was also the Canadian record holder for 1,500 free as a 13-year-old. And, and I, I don't recall seeing anybody since that time. It was so remarkable at form strokes and medley and could sustain that over a middle and long distance free until Marchand. It's, it's quite remarkable. And, and he may be in that class from some of the things we've seen early. He may be in that sort of stratosphere as an overall great Swimmer, and I know even with talking to some of the coaches of that era, they'd talk about who was the best freestyler they'd seen or the best breaststroker. But when they, the word, who's the best swimmer that you'd seen, as in the person who moves through the water in all shapes and forms the best, they would say Bauman. I think he may be up to that sort of class. Yeah, and you can't you can't talk about Leon without talking about Michael. And, yeah, you of know, course. 
you know, Michael, uh, I'm pretty sure held a held a record or was a national champion in just about every stroke except for breaststroke. And um, but even his even his breaststroke was outstanding when you compare him to normal people. Um, when you compare him to just strict breaststrokers, maybe not as you know, certainly not as fast, but at the same time. But here's Leon that is winning the um, the 200 breast and the 400 IM and could legitimately win the 500 free. Well, and it's it, Glenn, the, the, it's his age too that I think gets us excited because I, I've been to Australian age group nationals. You know, we've seen 13 year olds who are built like 25 year old men right. with similar profiles at 13 because they're bigger and stronger. And they're working in senior programs, even though they're 13-year-old swimmers. And we don't see much of them past 16 years of age. And I think that's what, what makes Marshawn so exciting. He's in a college program with a very, very good coach, surrounded by some great athletes in, in an outstanding program. Seeing someone at NCAA level showing those qualities and abilities across so many areas, that's, that's as you and I know, that's incredibly rare. 13-year-olds, you know, we've seen them come and go. But, man, someone at college standard doing it, it's pretty exceptional. Yeah, I don't I don't think any one person has had, has had the nation's leading time in this many events ever in the history of, of the sport. Um, and it's been very, very exciting to, to watch, like I said, and not knowing what event he's going to swim when he shows up at the meet. Uh, you know, he goes the 148 in the 200 breast, the 331 in the 400 IM, uh, 51 in the 100 breast. And again, I know these are yards times, but then the next week people show up and they want to see him swim the same events, but he doesn't. He completely changes what events he's swimming and then just demolishes everything. I mean, 44 in the 100 back at the same time that he goes, uh, you know, so it's backstroke, it's breaststroke, it's butter. The guy is phenomenal at everything, but most importantly, he avoids swimming more than anybody I've ever seen. And, you know, I've, I've argued to the point that I want to know who the first person in the 1500, so 30 lengths of, of freestyle, who's going to be the first person that underwater dolphins to the 15 meter mark every time you got, you got 35 meters to get your breath back. So, and you know, we're starting to see, he's not far off that for a 500 free. So that's 20 lengths. And he doesn't have as much time to get his breath back, um, you know, by the time he has to do it again. I so what's your thought? A, what's your thought? Like, go ahead. No, I think it's a good question that that the word you used was consistency. I, I would suspect that it's a great line from one of the best distance coaches that I'd ever known, John Crew, which he said that the aim isn't to swim a 1500. It's to swim one perfect. 50 30 times in a row and that was the idea around the consistency what was was what does a perfect lap look for us well it's going to look you know 29.5 or 28.5 or whatever time so uh, whatever split times i'll be looking for at, at that moment in history and the aim was okay well what does that look like in terms of underwater stroke count stroke rate number of breaths where do we take breaths Let's come up with what that looks like and let's learn to repeat it over and over and over in practice. So, look, I guess it would be someone starting with a vision of what's possible and saying, all right, let's train to do 15 underwater and then come up and hit an exact stroke count, exact stroke rate and control it and learn to do that over and over again so they could do it under speed and under pressure and under fatigue in a 1500. But that's a good question and, and there's an opportunity there for some coach. Absolutely. Somebody's going to be the first uh, that that does something like this. I mean, it kind of leads in really good. Let's see if I can get the right screen up here. Um, nope, that's the wrong screen. So we're going to go to screen one. And so um, this was Leon's 500 free. And uh, I, was, I was holding a pretty big camera. And so I'm sitting down. So there's a, you know, it's not the best angle. But uh, I'm, I'm looking at it from our, our new app. And so when we look at Leon right there in the middle, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to first watch as far as the first underwater, the first breakout. And you'll see, again, a little bit difficult to see. But here he comes up 
right right before the 15 meter mark on the first length. So he's he's going uh, you know as far as he possibly can. So when we talk about consistency, I'm going to switch over to the other side of the app, which is the data. Now, when you look at the bottom, the data at the bottom, what we're going to see is we're just really going to look at, just for a consistency standpoint, the strokes. So we can look at the breakout distance, but we're going to look at the strokes. And so here we go, six and then nine, 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 the whole way through until the last lap was 10 strokes. And the, the last lap is generally one stroke more because you're not, you're not rolling into the turn. So when we think about that, when we look at the race, what we realize is that six underwater dolphins and nine strokes the entire way. There was no variation from it. This was just consistency every time. He comes up, he's taking a breath on every stroke, so he breathes right away. Uh, let's go over back over to this side of the app so we can zoom in a little bit. So here's his, here's his breakout comes up low breath. And so most coaches you know, are saying, Hey, we're not the, you know, don't breathe on the first stroke. Well, guess what? If you're going halfway or 10 yards, 10 or 12 <laughs> yards, go ahead, take a breath. Okay. So just, just, it was, it was poetry in motion. It was absolutely beautiful to watch, but again, the consistency of, of what was going on was absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, this is not by luck, by by any means. This is this is consistent work on a daily basis. That's blown my mind. Apart from the consistency, the idea that they're breathing on the first stroke. So it's almost a a, a cardinal rule. When you know when we run clinics, you run clinics. You work with kids and coaches on skills. Don't breathe inside the flags. Kick the wall mm -hmm. out of the way as you push off fast underwater kick, going to breakout, don't breathe first three. You've, you've almost got a, 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 a rule book, if you like, of this is the way we do it. They've been smart enough to go, yeah, okay, that, that, that applies in most cases, but Formula One cars don't come off a production line. You know, that when you've got, got a unique athlete and you've come up with a way of maximizing their potential by, by underwater in this case, that necessitates taking a breath on breakout. We'll go with it. Now that's that's it, it. That jumped out at me straight away. I went why, and then you've explained it perfectly. Was well, that's the that's the price if you like. It's the physiological uh, oxygen mm -hmm. cost, the price that you pay for the underwater advantage that you've got. And it, a great lesson there for coaches is coach the kids standing in front of you. Adapt to the athlete without just always having strict, immovable, uh, unbreakable rules. If you've got an athlete that can gain an advantage by doing it differently, well, do it differently. Absolutely. Um, you know, again, uh, I do our Zoom meetings on Tuesdays, and I generally try to set myself up for failure by saying, these are the rules that you must follow, and then I'll pull up a video of an Olympian breaking the rules that I said, you should always follow these rules. Uh, and I know I said it on the first one that we have to be careful not to fix great athletes out of greatness because we're going to, we're going to fit them into this, this mold that they have to swim in. Um, so when we think about underwater dolphins, um, I wanted to show a couple other things. So I'm going to share another screen here because this is something that we do at, uh, we do at our camps when we're talking about underwater dolphins. And so this goes back to 1988. This is uh, Daichi Suzuki and uh, David Burkhoff in the finals of the Olympic Games. And you'll see him in lanes three and four. Uh, and so this is before the 15-meter rule. Okay, so these races are before the 15-meter rule. And we can watch these two athletes. It looks like there's, yeah, there's three now. Well, there's two. Oh, no, there is three. Let's see where they took their first stroke. So just a little bit, probably I'd say 35, 35 meters in approximately. So 35 meters underwater and then we'll watch the turn. They're going to do pretty much the similar thing. Oh, no, he's up much earlier. Okay, my bad. So up much earlier on that one. 
So let's look at this next one. This is one of my favorite videos. This is uh, Hill Taylor, and this is at a, just a, a meet in Austin, Texas. And uh, watch lane two. So watch lane two over here. This is with the 15-meter rule in effect. So the 15-meter <laughs> rule is in effect on this. And he just decided, you know what? Heck with it. I just want to see how fast <laughs> I can go. This is the difference between swimming and being underwater. Look at that. Absolutely amazing. Now, obviously, this is in the days of the tech suits, but he wins this race by three or two and a half to three seconds. And I'm pretty sure he broke the world record in the 50 back when he did that. But he got DQ'd because he was 15 <laughs> meters. All right. And so finally, this last one is uh, is Misty Hyman in 1996. Again, before the rule change. So here she is right there. And so, again, knowing that it's faster underwater than above water. So my point of this has always been we have only known that underwater dolphins are faster than swimming since 1988. Wow. It's like this yesterday. Is, <laughs> <laughs> this is not new. So the question is, if, if we were coaching full-time, and again, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to preach because I'm not coaching full time. But knowing what I know now, if I were to go back to a full time coaching job, I think the first thing I would do would be nothing but underwaters, and and really teach that skill to the point that we we minimize how much we swim, especially in short course yards. We minimize how much we swim by not swimming, but going faster underwater. What's your thought on that? I think the, the there's a great line that I like to quote from Laurie Lawrence, which is, it's only faster if it's faster. And there you go. the first time I heard it, I went, hang on, that's a little bit, yeah, it's out there. I'm trying to figure it out. But what he meant was, yeah, it is faster if you coach it and practice it and train it. I think what I see a lot with coaches, Glenn, is that they'll say, right, we think it's faster underwater. And they come up with a set of rules to say, right, everybody's got to do three big dolphin kicks before you come up. Now, if you've got kids who are doing those big, slow, thumping, paused kicks, it's not faster underwater. If you've got great technique and great body shape, solid core, alignment from back of head to top of hips, all those things in place, it's a great advantage to practice along those lines. I, 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 that, that's the only thing I can explain is that that I, I think that that maybe uh, some coaches don't understand what great underwater looks like. Maybe haven't studied Misty and and Marshawn and some of the great exponents of that skill and have have maybe heard a story. Well, yeah, we've got to do underwater because it's faster, but it's only faster if it's faster, which means. If, if you're swimming, let's say swimming around a, a minute for 100 freestyle, which is what's at 1.8, something like that, meters per second, something like that. My maths is terrible. I failed at high school, but let's say it's something up around that. Well, underwater has to be 1.9 or 2 meters per second to gain an advantage because, as Marshawn showed, if you're underwater, there's an oxygen cost. Yeah. But it's worth paying the price if you're getting a speed advantage, if you're underwater and it's slower or the same speed, well, there's no advantage because you're, you're, you're accumulating carbon dioxide. You can't blow that off. So I think that's the dance again. You've got to play is underwater is brilliant. We love it, but how do I coach it so that it's faster and I've got that advantage from it rather than saying none of my swimmers come up until they've gone eight meters. And that's the, I mean, that's the classic, isn't it? There's age group coaches will say nobody comes up until your feet go past the flags. Well, if they're underwater, uh, 0.5 of a meter per second slower than they would be on the surface, or get them up earlier, or train them to be faster underwater. I'd be interested. How do you go about doing that? What's your process of coaching underwater kick? So um, Misty taught me a great uh, a great progression and I've never published it because she and I got together and we were going to publish it. And because 
uh, we want to make sure that um, um, the right people get the right credit for it. Uh, but I use it. And so there's a system that I use to teach underwater dolphins. And so, um, you know, COVID kind of put a big, a big, uh, you know, pause on that. But I'll reach out to her again and show, you know, see if she wants to show what what she learned. Um, but the reality is, is that one of the things when we were on our trip is uh, the kickout sticks, the markers that, you know, there's there's a there's a, a limit you have to go at least this far before you come up off your underwaters. Now, the issue with that with young kids is that I see what they're doing is they're looking up to see where that marker is. <laughs> <laughs> so so it, in some ways it's fantastic. In other ways, it defeats the purpose because all they're trying to do is get under the marker. So one of the things that we started doing, and I do have some videos on, on Go Swim, is that I would make PVC pipes with sand in them, and then I'd sand them down so that they had flat edges, and I'd set them on the bottom of the pool so that they could keep their eyes down and say, okay, here's where my breakout point is. Uh, and the idea would be some different colors in case there's different kids in the lane that they pick, okay, I'm going to go to green, I'm going to go to orange, I'm going to go to yellow. That's my spot. And then there's the, the honesty factor the honesty factor and the integrity factor that I am going to make it to this point every day. And, um, you know, so as far as the, the functional teaching, uh, I have a system that I use, but again, it's Misty's system and I don't want to use it or, or, you know, talk about it without giving her the absolute credit for it. Um, but then the practical application again, goes back to consistency that you're going to hit that mark on every lap, no matter how hard it is to hit that mark. Um, and this is where I see sometimes that people get excited about doing underwaters. And so they say, we're going to do five. Everybody's going to do five. Well, if the kids are only doing two and then you go jump up to five, that's when the oxygen thing comes back in that they're so burnt out by the time they come up, they can't do it for more than one or two lengths. And then the consistency drops off. Nobody holds people to the, uh, to the, the marker. And then, um, it is what it is. It just, you know, it's not, uh, it's just inconsistent. I think there's, I think you're right. I think there's got to be that, that progression of the basic skill and then adding the speed and, and uh, the fatigue factors. So, I mean, on a simple terms doing, okay, can we stay underwater, come up at a specific point at or faster than target race speed? Then can I come up? at that same speed and then can I maintain race speed for five strokes and then can I do it for eight strokes? Can I do it for 12 strokes? Can I do it for a full lap? Can I do it for a 50 to, to extend that further and further? It's not something that you're going to do once this week and next week you're going to swim like Misty Hyman or Marshawn or some of the great exponents. It's, it's like anything in swimming. It's a, a gradual progression of building. Even I would say to coaches, you don't have to go full lengths. You don't have to to teach great underwater skill, come up and then make them swim through to the 50. You could go 10 metres, 20 metres, so 60 metres. So they've got to turn and come back holding race pace after a great underwater and just gradually get there over time because it's a significant change in, in physiological load, isn't it? Because you're travelling at the same speed but with a lot less oxygen consumption and it can and and maintaining core stability and and that's there's so much more to it than let's just stay underwater and gradually build on it and i think that's an, a critically important thing for coaches i got the question i've got for you too is what are you what are some of your basics that you use in when you're trying to develop this so that, for me the big four or five questions that i get at clinics or workshops are always how many kicks how long to stay underwater? Should they be big kicks or little kicks? When should the kick start? I get those same four or five questions all over the world all the time. Have you got a a, a system where you look at each of those, or have you have you got some ideas and suggestions around each of those? Because they seem to be the really big ones that coaches grapple with. Well, I mean, we, we start with just the push off, okay. And, and from a, a visual as well as a feeling uh, standpoint, how, how long can you go before you feel the deceleration occur? Okay, where is the, where is the real power? Um, and so 
you know, from a philosophical standpoint, you're always trying to add something in just before you slow down. Okay, it's maintaining the speed off the wall. And so you push off, you feel the glide and, and the rigidity of that initial drive where it's just fingertips to toes, you are pointed and locked. Um, and then the philosophy or the thought process is that you don't start it huge. You start it a little smaller because the first movement, if it breaks the line too much, then you scrub off a lot of speed in order to set up a huge, powerful kick. Uh, and and in, in my opinion, a lot of times when we seek power in swimming and we feel power in swimming, it's because we're trying to re-accelerate. We're not trying to maintain. We're trying to re-accelerate. So starting small and then growing um, is is one of the one of the things that I always try to think about. Now, since uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna share another screen here because this just happened to be on my recommended videos uh, for uh, for uh, YouTube here, and here's Misty Hyman. So this will give you a little bit of insight on on how I would teach because this is actually Misty doing it. Very very big. Okay. Well, now, yeah. One of the things here is that she is incredibly flexible. All right. And so you see that the front end moving a lot. So moving a lot on the front end. Okay. And there she's got fins on. I actually have video of Misty doing this uh, when she is seven months pregnant. Okay. Oh, we were at yeah. a pool together and I filmed her when she was seven months pregnant. It was just for her. And so I've never published it. It was just for her to uh, to see. And it was beautiful. And she still had all the same the same uh, movements. Uh, so what you saw there was a slow, big progression. And so you start with very slow rate. And what I do, especially for our camps, and this is actually something I learned from David Marsh and watching him. So you take back in the old days, we had these things called false start ropes. OK, uh, yeah. that if you full started. So there were these half poles, about, you know, about halfway down the pool. Now they'd be ridiculous. Everybody go under them anyway. Um, yeah. But but if, if there was a full start, they dropped the line and you'd come up and you'd choke on it. And, you know, and it would stop. you. <laughs> and it used to be pole. funny. <laughs> it used to be funny when you couldn't get to the full start rope quickly enough. And some poor kids just gone and they exactly. think they're breaking the world record. It's because nobody else stopped. They're the only one that's still swimming. Um, but you take you take a metal pole and maybe a wrench or something. And so you have the entire pool and you've got this in there and you're just clicking. Tink, tink, tink. And the idea is forward, backward, forward, backward. And you're starting these very, very big movements, as you saw Misty doing there. And then over the course of eight lengths, it gets down to ding, 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 ding. And you got the whole pool going forward, backward, forward, backward, forward, backward, forward. And so as the increase of the rate, the amplitude mm. that you saw from Misty decreases. And now you start to have minimal movement of the hands on some athletes. Misty and another great one right now, Shane Cassis, they have a lot of movement with their hands. But it's not up and down. It's flowing. They're, they're piercing the water. So there are some variations in techniques, but it really comes down to what is the amplitude and what is the rate. And, and when you're teaching a whole group of people, it's good that when you've got that thing and everybody in the pool can hear it. And when you're above water watching it, it's like synchronized swimming. You know, it's just, it's really cool to watch. So that's, that's, that's interesting. Kind of that's interesting how you use the timing too. Cause I know uh, I chat with Eddie Reese years ago that, he was a big believer in just to start with a simple formula of eight kicks in three seconds. So yeah. I know when I've done age group clinics is I'll go, okay, guys, with me, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, everybody, one, two, three, okay, that's three seconds. Let's do it again. And, okay, so when we get to that point in after push-off and we're looking for that that same timing is that you got them doing one, two, three, is that a rule for everybody? No. Is it a nice no. way to get people thinking of the being aware of I've got a kick, it's got to be fast, I can't allow myself to slow down too much, and you're giving them a couple of targets and get that feel, you know, that get that timing in their their minds as they're about to leave, and they can feel that and they can they'll get close to it. I think 
you know, we've got to find somewhere to start to give them the concept of underwater, fast kick, explode, maintain speed, all those things. When, when I'm when I'm working with a large group of kids, um, this is where I end up. Okay, we're gonna pretend like this is the pole underwater, and we get to the final the final point. I love over exaggeration in order to find something, and so the last one looks like this. <laughs> I'm just hitting this thing as fast as I can because I want them to chase what is the right thing. So where do they fit in? And so we start as you would with any teaching with a system, with a very simple progression. And then you push them up to the point of, okay, what, what is yours? What is the perfect match between the amplitude and the rate that allows you to go the fastest? And so it's almost, you're taking the training wheels off, but the real fast hit is to add the intensity of what the underwater dolphin is. This is not, you know, Misty starts with what we just saw, but she ends up that there's amplitude and rate and, and velocity. And so that's really what we're trying to go for. Um, even to the point, I'm going to go back really quickly to the app, make sure I have the right one, is that when you look at the app, so this is, this is something for everybody, is that the first two lines in here, is breakout split and breakout distance. So how fast do you get to the point where you start to swim? So it's that important that that's the two leading things. Well, they're leading because it's the first thing in the lap is the underwaters. But we want kids to start to understand what they're doing, how, how fast they're going, how long it takes them to get to this point. And so the more knowledgeable they are, the more I think we buy them into working on okay, I've got to go farther, faster. How do I do that? And then we get back to consistency of effort. So there's a, there's a couple of good drills I've seen over the years too, is a really simple one in pools where you've got this flexibility to do it. And in pools where you've got lane widths, which are the standard two meter widths is you can do some practice where you push off from the side and You've got a, a very simple measurement. So, you know, again, just roughly, uh, you work this out with your individual swimmers, but you say, all right, I want my swimmers to come up at 10 meters. That's five two meter laps. How long does it take for you to go five uh, lane? Sorry. How long does it take you to get to lane five underwater from the side? So, you've got it, just gives you, as a coach, gives you as a swimmer, particularly if you're doing it on your back, you can see up that it gives you a rough idea of say, hang on, how long did it take me to go about 10 metres off the wall? Where am I? And how long would it take me to swim that fast and start to play with ideas about marrying that distance and speed equation to figure out what's right? And I know the, the, the other little thing I like to do with coaches and swimmers on this is I talk about the three kicks, not one, two, three, but I say, guys, basically with age groupers, the three places that they're, they're not as effective as they could be in kick is usually they're not kicking underwater at all. They're not kicking fast underwater. They're not kicking themselves to the surface mm -hmm. and then they don't kick into their stroke. Because if you look at age groupers, that's classic is they hit the water and they wait till they almost stop and then they kick. So that's the first yeah. breakdown point. Then when they stop kicking, they bob up rather than surge smoothly towards the surface. And then the absolute classic, I mean, how many times have you seen this? Is it going kick, 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 stop. Then they get their arms going and then they bring in their, their flutter kick, freestyle backstroke kick. So I, I know I say to coaches, look, in, in addition to the technical side and the speed that they maintain, try and, try and look at their underwater, ideally with an underwater camera, but have a look at their technique because we want to see them kicking fast underwater, deliberately kicking to the surface, not just bobbing up, but deliberately kicking to the surface. And then, of course, kicking into their first stroke, not stopping and then arms going and legs are dragging until get them in. I think that sequencing is really important too. Yeah, as far as timing the breakout. And uh, so I'm going to – I think this is a good time for us to say, is this the fifth stroke? It's been called the fifth stroke. And so how do we define the fifth stroke from a standpoint that we really treat it as 
its own thing. Um, so, I mean, what's your what's your thought on that? I'm going to look for a video here. One of my favorite videos. Um, well, I, what I think it does, Glenn, by calling it the fifth stroke or referring it to the fifth stroke, you increase its emphasis from just being another skill to something yeah. at the same status of the of it's uh, i'm just trying to think of an analogy but it it's like talking about i know the importance of water you know is is in in our diets we talk about fruit and vegetables and proteins and carbohydrates water's just there but the importance of hydration in the breakdown of food in hydration in in all areas of metabolism it's a food if you like it's a, it's a uh, it's it's as important as fruit and vegetables and vitamins and minerals and everything else it's incredibly vital but we just it's just sort of there on the table as something that goes with our meal and i think by actually saying that hang on underwater is so important and it's such a deadly skill to master as a racer that if you give it priority if you make it as important as practicing all the other skills and the strokes if you give it that status then when you're writing workouts, instead of just writing butterfly, backstroke, breaststroke, freestyle medley, it, it's inherent and in, in a core part of everything you do as a coach from writing the workout to delivering the, the practice. I think that that's tremendous. I mean, you know, elevating it to the status of its own, its own stroke. Uh, so uh, this particular video is one that I think was one of the most telling to me. Uh, and it was a great education when, when we worked with Ricky Behrens, who, of course, swam for Eddie Reese. And great if we swim. look at the text down here, rather than, rather than uh, just watching the whole video, uh, when Ricky talks about his, his racing, yeah. uh, what we see is that he starts with four to five dolphin kicks and then for the last 50s, he goes to six to seven. And for long course, he starts with five, six, or seven dolphin kicks off every wall. And then at the end, he goes seven, eight, or nine. And so as his swimming loses velocity because of fatigue, normally people would shorten the underwater dolphins in order to get air. Here is the former American record holder in the 200 freestyle, Olympic champion in the 800 free relay, who says – I know that it's faster. I'm going to suffer, do whatever I have to, or I've trained myself to the point that I am going to add underwater dolphins rather than subtract at the end of the race. And so that is one of my favorite all-time videos that I share with kids to talk about the importance of the underwater dolphins. Um, so, I mean, just that thought process to me when I was working with them, it was just like, it was really mind-blowing. Uh, that it's completely against instinct. This is in which we know everything instinctual in the humans means you're going to go slow. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting concept, isn't it? That you know, I know when I talk to coaches about technique, Glenn, I say teach the skill. So teach, then train the skill, then mm. test the skill. And yeah. so you teach a technique, which could be, Okay, guys, every, every 11, 12-year-old kid in the team, we do eight kicks in three seconds or we come up at 10 metres or uh, and we want a long, straight, tall body and we want a nice, flat back position from head to hips or whatever your personal perspective is. It, all coaches will find a way around that. So I teach a skill, but then I train the skill. And that's, all right, so I've taught you how to do it. Let's train it to make it work so that, when and where it really matters under race conditions, you can do it. And then we test it. We might go to a low-level meet and say, hey, let's see what this looks like. Let's start with six, go to eight, finish on nine off the walls over a short course 100 or something, and let's see how it goes. And then we go back and we teach maybe a change. We train the change and we test it again. And that teach, train, test. A lot of it is trial and error. And Look, I know coaches get frustrated and I'm sure you get it the same. The coaches will say, I want a definitive answer. I want how many kicks the swimmers have to do underwater to be fast. Where do all swimmers have to come up to be fast? Well, the answer is it's faster if it's faster. You've got to find a point. You play with the tools of kicking speed, body position, body shape, breathing control, 
you play with those factors and you find that lovely balance for each individual swimmer. We talked about this in the first episode was every swimmer is different. Every, every swimmer will be unique in the way they do this, but you've got a, a, a toolbox playing with distance off the wall, speed underwater, body alignment, uh, amplitude of kicks. You've got all those tools to come up with what's the optimal solution for that individual swimmer. I think one of the most important things you just said is test. Okay. And, and the way that you said it was you're not testing at practice, you're testing in a race situation. And I think that at least here with the age group swimmers that I work with, there's such a fear of failure. Uh, you know, if I, if I ask a swimmer, um, there was one young swimmer and he wanted to know how to swim a 200 freestyle. And uh, I think it was like 13, 14 years old at this time. I said, have you ever tried just to go all out for the whole thing? And he said, he said, I'll, I'll die. And I said, probably. I said, probably. But what if you don't? What if you don't? You know, what, what if you're the one that, that doesn't die? You know, and you don't have a lot of muscle yet. So you don't have a lot that will die. But if you're tentative about going out so i said you know again being in the united states i said what do you think the american record in the 200 freestyle is and of course they don't know they're you know they're swimming 210 or something like that and so the idea of someone going a 129 for a 200 freestyle is just it's just out there but when i tell them it's a 129 and i say which one of those 50s was the easy one there are none. There are none. And so you you have got to start to train yourself to that situation that you put yourself in a position that you have to then go to your heart at the end. And you and and it will hurt until you see the clock. And then when you see the clock if you're successful, man, how many times have you heard it felt so good? I could do it. I could jump right back in and do it again. <laughs> What's the reality on that one? No, no, you couldn't. You couldn't. You'd get to the, you'd get to the, you know, halfway through the second 25 and you'd be like, what am I doing? I can't even feel anything anymore. But you forget <laughs> the pain when you succeed. Um, but yeah, it's sometimes you have to be brave. But I think, again, on your point is we're so afraid of failure and the kids are so afraid of failure, whether they're disappointing themselves, their parents, their coaches that they don't want to try anything. And the idea that if a coach buys into this and says, we're going to try this, and then you look for the positives out of it, rather than just the time, what were the positive things when you tested this? What are the lights that we can see, uh, you know, that, that we can take into the next race or we can take back into training? What are those things that we discovered with this test? And I think that takes so much pressure off. Did I go my best time or not? And, I, and this is where the, the whole society has changed from when we were kids is that I expected to go at best time once or twice a year. Okay. When I shaved, rested, tapered and all that stuff. Now, boy, if they don't do a best time every meet, then somebody has failed them and, or they have failed. And it's just, this, the sport isn't built like that. Um, I mean, but it kind of gets to what Bob and, and Rachel and ASU are doing uh, in doing all the suited swims in the second second half, they're always swimming fast, but they're not rested yet. So we'll see how you know how Pax goes next week. But um, but I think that is that is pure genius in the test at a competition. It's not a test at practice. It doesn't carry the same weight to it that people say. Well, we tested this in practice. It didn't work. Nah, it's not the same. It's not the same. It's it's not, and you know where I, I first started thinking about that as a concept is, believe it or not, I heard a long time ago, I heard, um, who was it? Just It might have been Jason Alexander from Seinfeld. He was talking about Broadway, and he was talking about what he does, and he says, oh, you know, we read the script, and, and uh, he said we bounce ideas off each other. He said, then we do rehearsals for hours, and then we go off Broadway, and we see how it all works with a live audience before. And I thought that's man, that, that is, he would have been a good swimming coach, George from Seinfeld, because yeah. 
that's really where you find out, isn't it? If the audience says, man, it doesn't work and no one's laughing, well, you got to go back and fix yeah. it before you go to Broadway where they're paying $200 a ticket and you're going to have reviews written about you and your career could be over. You never want to have, whenever want to go to the US Nationals and go to Olympic trials, having not tested your technique under the fatigue and pressure and, and emotion of a meet. Otherwise, it's a, uh, it's a false sense of security. You say, well, I can do the technique. I can do it at race speed. And, you know, I, I just, it's, this could be a great topic for another, another chat that I was talking to a coach the other day and he was talking about the swimmers that he's got that just don't perform at meets. And I said, well, the, the issue isn't that you're training them to do the time. You're not training them to perform in the environment where the competition will be held because the gap between a nice quiet pool on a Saturday morning doing technique work to then being at national championships is you're almost, it's almost a different sport in a different planet. It's so big. Whereas if you go to meets and you go, is the practice working? Are they fast? How do they feel? What have we learned? Uh, you know, always, I think great. The, the coaches have got rules around meets, haven't they? The fifth meet is what matters. So I go to low-level meets. I, I test our skills. I get feedback on our training before we go to Broadway and see if it's really working when it, it really needs to work. I, I think that would be a great chat for – a great topic for us to really get into at some stage. Because I know it, it plays on the mind of coaches and athletes a lot is, is why aren't I performing when or where it matters. Well, I think it's because you're not testing the skills – and your capabilities in the right environment. Well, you're the master at that. I mean, you know, the, the swimmers that I, I have here that come to me and, and say, you know, is there someone we can talk to about meat preparation and things like that from the mental aspect? Uh, I say, well, the time changes a little much, but this is the guy you <laughs> want to talk to. And so, uh, you know, we have quite a few athletes that are talking to you on a regular basis, which I really appreciate. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we talked about before is, you know, not to assume that they're not practicing. But what I can tell you is that having been to uh, a lot of teams on the road, the question is, if we know all this, why what would be the reason why someone wouldn't practice underwater dolphins more? Is it purely because it doesn't represent perceived value in terms of laps completed is it just a straight i need these kids to do uh 50 in practice this week 60 in practice this week and i count freestyle laps and i count breaststroke laps i count medley laps but i don't count underwater so because i can't count it you know that wonderful phrase that's on a t-shirt i've seen in the u.s many times don't count the laps make every lap count i think the mm. the obsession with counting right. laps rather than yeah. counting the impact that those laps make. I think that could be one of it. I think it can be difficult to coach something you can't easily see. So mm -hmm. I think that's why we give the I – mean, we can easily give someone feedback on their butterfly technique because I can see the whole thing. Maybe it's because it's out of sight. I, I, I give them broad parameters, and as long as they come up at 10 metres, we go, okay, I can tick the, the list. But yeah, I, I don't know when when we know there's an advantage and, and we know there's an opportunity. I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, often it, it's not an exact science that, but I often say science isn't even an exact science. But but it's not an exact science. But if you say to a coach, you say, "All right, well, you've got a hundred yards short course racing. What percentage of that?" do you think underwater could contribute to a great performance? And they, they start adding it up. So hang on, okay, nine strokes below. Well, okay, so I've got 100 and roughly underwater, I could be underwater for 30 metres, 30 yards, 40 yards, whatever you, this strategy is. All right, then that's about 30% of the race. Are you doing anywhere near 30% of the practice time on underwater work? Because that, right. to me, just as a broad principle, and, you know, of course you're not going to make 30% of your practice time underwater, but, you know, as a broad principle, say, hang on a minute, so you've got this race. 
you know that if roughly 30% of the time, 20% of the time, even being really conservative, that 20%, 30% of the time underwater is critical for you to do well in that race. Is that reflected in your practice? Are you anywhere near 20%, 30% of your practice time allocated to that skill? Because that's what it represents in the race. And I think coaches start to think that way. Say, hang on a minute. Yeah, wow, I'm doing 95% of my practice on this skill, which is swimming fast, when 30% of the race isn't that skill. Maybe there's another way I can look at this. Maybe that's a, that's a way to start approaching it. I agree with you from a standpoint that it's much we get we get caught up in intervals a lot of times. We want to make sure that yeah. they're making the interval. And one of the things that I had said after spending a year and a half on the road was uh, when I spoke at ASCA, one of my one of my ideas was add five seconds to every interval. Don't take five seconds off. Add five seconds to every interval, but demand a technical aspect be done. Uh, whether it be an underwater dolphin, whether it be proper streamlines, you know, uh, breath control, something like that, that sharpens things up. The, the practice would actually get harder, even though they're not going as fast on their intervals. Um, I always like to think about um, you guys have carnivals in, uh, in Australia. So you go to a carnival and, yeah. and you can, you know, you, you can throw balls at something and win a prize. You win a big teddy bear or something like that. Well, the basketball hoops there are, are like a centimeter bigger than the basketball. So you got to be perfect. And I always thought, imagine if you practiced on that hoop all the time and then you got to a regular hoop, it would seem like you're throwing it into a garbage can. So it's the same thing from, uh, from this sort of thing. If you practice underwater dolphins, yes, it gets harder from the oxygen standpoint. Yes, it, gets, it may be slower initially that there's a frustration point that you have to go through and you have to work through. But we know without a doubt, you watch any Olympics, watch world championships, watch any national championships in any country on the face of the planet. And the people that are in the finals have great underwater dolphins. And it's like, okay, I get it. So, but, you know, we still, we still want to just see how far we can go sometimes and in the limited time. Um, So, it's it's a it's a difficult one without a doubt because you have to balance. We understand that coaches have so much to balance, um, you know. So there are so many different variations in how to, how you can put uh, underwater dolphins into the practice uh, to the point of uh, do a set that's only focusing on the number of underwater dolphins there is. So the whole set everybody has to, has to require this skill. Um, when you wrote up a bunch of different ones, uh, you know, why don't you talk about a couple of the different variations that you that you can think of? Well, I think what we've got to talk about as well is to make sure coaches everywhere are thinking about safety when they do their underwater. And I know it's been a huge push. Yeah. I know Bob Bowman did a wonderful session at uh, in Cleveland at an ASCA clinic a little while ago, which you and I were both at about shallow water blackout, for example, is yeah. I think coaches have got to be moving away from doing underwater kicking practice focused on how far can they go. I mean, you, you remember some of the practices you did as a kid, no doubt, yep. would have been, okay, guys, we're going to see how far we can go underwater and can we just do, we're going to do 25s underwater and who can do 50s underwater. So we know coaches that that is not, a great way to practice underwater, just saying to the kids, how far can you go? There's a lot of safety issues. So please move away from how far can we go underwater to how fast can we go underwater with great technique and come up within a legal distance. That's that's the key. Just getting them underneath with fins on and doing 50s is a thing of the past. It's way too dangerous. And Absolutely. everything that I see, and I know Glenn believes, it's just too dangerous and it doesn't make them better. It, it, it's just some crazy thing we used to do when we didn't know any better. So be thinking that, yeah. about underwater. So first of all, the, the some of the variations are how many kicks to do. That's a big question. So I, I point out that eight kicks in three seconds, the Eddie Reese model, or 
coming up with a model that you like. The amplitude, and I think you addressed that beautifully on that, you know, changing the pace of the kick as they start to build their kick. I love that term, you build your kick. Your kick gets faster and faster. They will allow you to explode into breakout stroke at the highest possible speed. That's really important. I think, too, the undulation's interesting, isn't it? They're just seeing Misty, it's incredible that that level of flexibility and that beautiful flow and that ease of flow, it, it's almost hypnotic uh, yeah. to, to watch that. But, you know, when you watch all the great ones, when they get to the kick starts to really move, you start to see that that long, strong, straight body position, that platform position, we say, from back ahead to top of hips. And someone said to me once, said, oh, well, this is to make you swim like a fish. And they did that. I'm just trying to find where my camera is, you know, to do yep. that. Well, now, if you actually watch a fish, the front part of the fish doesn't move. The front Doesn't part move. of the fish stays. That if you've if you've gone fishing or you've had a piece of fish, that the front part of the barracuda or the snapper or the whatever you're eating, that front part's really stiff where the gills just are and where their nose is. That's strong, and there's there's not a lot of flexibility of that. That's very, but the back end's going crazy, and yeah. I think there's that's a hint, very much about about what's optimal underwater is that long, tall, strong, straight, uh, stable core body position that we're looking for at the front end while the feet are moving quickly in both direction and employing a lot of force at high speed. So, you know, they're the, they're, but they're the big questions, aren't they? Is how many kicks, where do I come up, big kicks or little kicks? I, I once heard a great quote. Uh, I can't remember where I heard it, but it's, if it's faster, it's faster. Yeah. Wasn't that you? Like 40 minutes? Well, I don't know. It's the sort of thing I might have said after a couple of beers, but but uh, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> so uh, suffice it to say, we believe that everyone should be working more on their underwaters, uh, underwater dolphins. We're going to be adding some new things to uh, the podcast, and we're going to call it Technique Time. And what we're going to do here is people can send in their videos to us and uh, we're going to select one video each time. And we're actually going to do an evaluation live uh, in front of everybody and just give our thoughts on, um, you know, on kind of what we think you should be doing. Uh, so if you're brave enough to send us a video right there is the address. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes uh, and you can just drop that and that will come directly to me. And then uh, hopefully it's good video. There's actually a course on Go Swim that shows you how to, it teaches you how to film for underwaters. Um, and so I'll try to put those in the show notes as well. And then uh, we've been talking about what's next. And so we talked for a little while. So Wayne, explain what we feel is the technical eye. Yeah, the, the, it was it, like most things with us, it just sort of emerged from the, the swimming ether was we were talking about about technique and and it started to emerge from a discussion I had with a, a inexperienced coach, a very passionate but very inexperienced coach the other day when we were looking at a video of one of their swimmers and, and it was a butterfly technique. And I said, what do you see? And they only saw kicking. They only saw legs and all the discussion was around legs. And I heard myself saying to them, yeah, but what do you see? What do you, what are you seeing about the technique of the swimmer? Not their their legs, but what what do you see? And it dawned on me that that's a skill you've got to develop as a coach. You've got to develop a technical eye where you can go. Hang on a minute. Before I look at feet or arms or breathing or timing or uh, where my hands are or hand pitch angles and all, I'm just going to have a look and with my technical eye, go. Okay, something's just there's something not working here. And then as you say, break it down fingers to toes. Go, all right, okay, something's not quite right. It's, it doesn't feel right. doesn't look like to my technical eye. I'm going to look at hands. Then we're going to look at elbows, shoulders, head, body, head, hips, hips, legs, feet, and then start to look at solutions after that. But I think a lot of coaches 
maybe with a limited toolbox in those first year or so of your coaching is you're looking only through, I'm only going to look at head position. I'm only going to look at feet. I'm only going to, well, where if you're only coaching a pair of feet, that's a good idea, but you're coaching an integrated, flexible, a dynamic, uh, adaptable whole mechanism, you know, a whole human being and your ability to identify minute detail to me isn't as important as having the technical eye to see the whole picture and then start to break it down. So I think that'd be a good discussion to have. It'll be fun after, you know, many, many years of just doing that and, and trying to watch and help. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll knock that one out next week. And for now, um, yeah, very cool. I, I enjoyed this. So hopefully, hopefully somebody will get something out of it, but, um, <laughs> Have a good weekend. We always will... do. Yeah, yeah. We always have a good time. All right. So we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.